In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook, to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I begin, a programming note next week on Wednesday's show, I'll be joined by psychologist Dr. Melody Levion, and we're going to talk about postpartum depression. Very important topic and sometimes very misunderstood or something people don't know much about. And as always, that does create more pain and suffering when people are dealing with an issue but don't know that it's actually more typical than they might think and also what they can do about it. So looking forward to having her on the show next week to talk about that important topic. And before I discuss the book for this week, actually before I even say that, I want to thank everyone who's already donated. Um, I mentioned last week that I'll be going to orphanage i went to last year in mexico at the end of july and i put the link to donate on my um, facebook instagram and twitter and already got close to the goal of a thousand dollars so far just in that week so i'm going to actually make the goal a little bit higher so if you have not donated and you are interested you can go to either my instagram page facebook page or uh, twitter and find the link there to uh, donate to that orphanage that i'll be going to next month so thank you to everyone who already has donated. All right, so the book for this week that I'll talk about next week um, is Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And I actually had to look up the pronunciation of his name and found a few different sources just to make sure I was getting it right. I probably still didn't say it's so good, but his name is difficult to read and pronounce, but my name is Fahir Hulakwi, so I probably shouldn't say much myself. But you can find... Uh, the picture of the book, I'll put it by today so you can see that you have the right book, would flow a topic I've talked about before, um, this issue or this concept of when we get into flow and what that means. Um, but I'll read the book and hope you'll join me and talk about it on Monday's show. But the book for this past week, which I'll talk about today since I didn't do a live show, Monday night is A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello. Now, this book, I didn't know it was my first time reading it, and when I'd ordered the book, um, I didn't know it was written in such an academic way. So the book, although it's a shorter book relatively, about 160 pages, written in a uh, format of like an academic journal or scientific journal, very technical, and um, because of that, although it was shorter, it was, I'll be honest, harder to get through because I would read a few pages at a time and even have to review some of what I read because it was pretty dense. Uh, but I'm happy I read the book because he provides his uh, argument for why human re- morality or how human morality has evolved. Uh, when we look at being moral or even being altruistic, sometimes people say it doesn't make sense for people to be 
altruistic from an evolutionary standpoint because you should be doing things to improve your own fitness or your ability to reproduce and pass on your genes. Why would you help someone else? Well, then there came some ideas of what might make someone or some animal act in a moral way towards someone else or do something that benefits someone else. One of them is reciprocal altruism. So basically, I scratch your back, you scratch my back, or I might help you now, but that means that you might later on help me. So in a way, it still helps me. I can still actually benefit from it. So that was one way that they came up with understanding why one animal would help another animal. And the other one was inclusive fitness, which is basically that if I help people that are related to me, because they carry some of my genes, improving their fitness then allows for more of my genes to get passed on. So, of course, the clearest sense of this is helping your children, but even helping a brother or helping a cousin can help you pass on your genes because they share some of your genes. So if I help my family, essentially, uh, that could help pass on my genes as well. But what we see in human morality extends farther than that. And in this book, Michael Tomasello goes into uh, detailed accounts looking at research on monkeys and uh, apes and also in young children and humans and looking at how human morality might have evolved or what makes sense to him. And essentially a big part of his argument is the argument of interdependence, that part of what has allowed human morality to evolve the way that it has is this concept of being interdependent on one another, that we as humans need one another in order to survive. And the more specialized things have become, people need each other to survive. If you think about it, any one of us, you might have a profession, you might do lots of things, but you get a house that was built by someone and designed by someone. And even in that house, the electricity was designed by someone and invented by someone and someone else put it in and did all these things. So really, we are so dependent on other people to survive. No one is really surviving at all by themselves or on their own. We are very interdependent. And that's, we're talking about contemporary humans now. But even before, he describes how ecologically things were changing and we became more interdependent. So the first step he talks about is how humans needed to um, to get food, it became less something independent, and they had to form pairs, essentially. And this created this uh, joint intentionality or this idea that me and you together have to work together in order to get food and to survive. So I was in that way needing you and you were needing me, and it was important for us to form what we can call a we. There was this we that was bigger than either you or I, and both of us were essentially dependent on this we to survive. So this is a level of interdependence. I can't do it without you. I need you and you need me. And because of this, we keep each other accountable. And even as he explains, we started to keep ourselves accountable because we knew what it meant to be a good partner, a good companion in order to get what we needed to get. And so we had to keep each other accountable, but also ourselves as well. So where there was this idea of becoming partners in foraging together, that was one step in creating the human uh, morality that we see. But then he said this extended further as our population increased and we started to become even more dependent on a group 
because we had competition with other groups as well. So this is what he calls like a development of a culture, essentially a group of people that are, it's larger than just this very small one-to-one type of a thing, maybe um, extends to about 150 people or even more. But these are people that are not all related to you, and all of them you don't even necessarily know very well. Part of them might be strangers, but you recognize them as part of your group. And this is a very big thing and something that, as he talks about, although he doesn't get into detail, there's so many studies showing how important this in-group, out-group bias is that I like, favor, and have beneficial feelings towards people in my in-group, and the people in my out-group I see as a threat, and I don't see them in such a positive light. We still see that today, um, this us versus them, where we have this us that I'll take care of you, you'll take care of me, we all have a similar identity, we all work together to survive, and there's these them that are these barbarians that are outside of us that we actually don't like, and we even maybe can be aggressive towards if we need to in order to survive. So there was this bigger picture that kind of developed where we went from just this me and you to this we, this bigger group, not just a we of two people, but of a whole culture. And this started a new feeling of we are born into a culture and we're given these prescriptions, these rules, these norms, and we need to follow them in order to be part of the group. And to actually not conform to them can be a threat to the group and a threat to us because people don't like that. They want to feel that you are part of a group. And we see this to this day, how important it is for us to look at people as an us rather than a them. And we see them as a them, we can go to war with them, we can hurt them, we can kill them. But if we see them as a us, we treat them very differently. And us can change depending on the context of where you are. Um, I remember one of my anthropology professors presented this very nicely. He said, "If when I was at UCLA, and you'd say, if you're walking around the LA area and you see someone in a USC sweatshirt, but you're wearing your UCLA sweatshirt, you see each other as enemies. You're a us and that's a them. But he said, if you were traveling in some foreign country and you barely spoke the language and you were struggling, and then you saw someone in a USC sweatshirt, all of a sudden you say, oh, this person, he's a us. I can go talk to him and maybe he can help me out and we can actually bond and support each other in this process. All of a sudden, that person who I thought of as a them in another context becomes an us. And that shows us that this idea of our group membership and our us and them is flexible. It's not some fixed thing. But that we can understand we have a bias towards certain things, like, for example, people that look like us, people who are culturally or ethnically similar to you, you're more likely going to be seeing them as a us. It's easier for us to do that. Now, in this book, he it's very academic, as I was saying, and he doesn't get into recommendations for the world and how we can become more moral, but I'll add some of my own thoughts about that. To begin with, looking at his idea of interdependence, we know that as a world, we are very interdependent at this case. Even though we can survive on our own, let's say as a country to a certain degree, we still have an interdependence in that we do benefit from communicating and working together, but also with two, let's say, specific issues that I can bring up. We are interdependent nonetheless. For example, because of the types of weapons we have now, we are interdependent that if we use enough nuclear bombs, we can end the planet. We can end the human species if we're not careful. We definitely have that capability to easily 
uh, end all of the life on earth. So if we aren't able to work together, if we're not able to at least get along to a certain degree, we can basically cease to exist. So we are interdependent on one another in that sense. Another way we can look at the interdependence is treating the planet itself as far as the environment goes. What someone does in another country affects the environment as a whole to a certain degree. So we are very interdependent in that way as well, the way we are treating the planet. And if we're not careful in both of these regards, this book, A Natural History of Human Morality, there can be someone who writes a book, and it won't be a human, but some other species at some point that writes the, A Natural History of Human Beings and how they started and how they ended, and will, there will be an end point. So one step is recognizing that we are still interdependent. This idea that maybe we don't need people or we can survive on our own is a fallacy. We live still in an interdependent world and our psychology actually is geared towards that and we can tap into that. But also the other one is this in-group, out-group feeling. And our psychology, unfortunately, it seems, tends to think of a smaller or a narrower group of people as our in-group, maybe not the whole human species, at least let's say initially. So we might just see uh, people that look like us as an us and everyone else as a them. But in our lives, we're not living the way we used to, where different tribes lived in different areas and they looked more or less alike and dressed alike. When you live in somewhere like the United States, you have people from all over the world and many different countries and cultures and ethnicities all living together. And so your us is very different from just people who look like you. And the good news is we can expand our feeling of us by interacting with other people, and especially, and as the book itself talks about, when you collaborate with people who are different from you or whatever they might be, they start to become an us. Because as I was talking about before, when you work together, you feel that interdependence and that feeling that I need you, you need me, and we feel like a group, we feel connected. Uh, there's a famous study where they had uh, kids at a camp and they made them very us versus them. They separated them into two groups and throughout the week they started to really dislike each other and even were getting aggressive towards each other but the way that they bridged the gap and made them unified is they had to do this project that they could only do together it was like pushing a cart out of the mud or doing something that involved physical labor but they needed all of them to work together and after they all worked together they actually felt connected and all of that division that us versus them melted away and dissolved, and they became an us together, a group together. So we know that when we work together and we interact with one another, we can expand who we see as an us and re reduce that them. And to me, one of our goals or what we want to do as a human in today's world is to see the whole world as a us, that everyone is part of your human family and part of your group. Um, and I think that actually live leads to a more harmonious or happier mentality within this world and then extending your morality to all people because that's something else the book talks about is that that morality extended to the people you saw as us but people you saw as a them well you could be you can treat them poorly you saw them as barbarians or outsiders that needed to be you had to protect yourself from and wouldn't want to support or help but when you see everyone as an us then you see everyone is worthy of receiving um, the goods of the world and worthy of protection and your help if they need it. And that's something that I, I think we can all hopefully strive towards. 
So if you want to read a pretty technical book looking at the evolution of human morality and expressing it in uh, his theory where interdependence played a strong role, and there's much more to it than I explained in this segment, you can take a look at the book A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello, and I hope you'll join me in reading the book for this coming week, week, which I'll talk about Monday night, Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, and I'll post a picture of the book today on my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hi, doctor. Hi. Thank you for having me on the air. Sure, thanks for calling. Uh, okay, my question is about my um, son, who is three and a half years old. Um, okay. He has been going to um, preschool since he was two. And I have another younger um, baby. She's uh, one year and three months old. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Okay, in recently, like uh, from last week, he has been very anxious. Uh, the anxiety runs in uh, our families, uh, especially my husband's family. Mm-hmm. Um, he has been very anxious about uh, certain things, uh, like if he has chocolate, um, he has going to damage his teeth, and if he eats um, such and such things like uh, grape with the on it, he's going to get sick. Uh, if he doesn't wash his hands, he's going to get sick. Or if he watches too much TV, uh, his eyes are going to be red and he's, um, it's going to um, hurt. Mm. Um, something, some things like that. And since last week, the same with the uh, same uh, symptoms, uh, he has started uh, not, uh, I mean, he doesn't like to go to school anymore. Uh, he wakes up at like 6 a.m. in the morning crying and, and nagging about not going to school. I don't want to go to school today. I want to stay here. I'm going to miss you. And I, I really don't know what to do. And I, I don't I don't know where did all this started from. Uh, I don't know if I, I try to have conversations with him, uh, like ask him uh, what's going on in the school, who told you this, who told you that. And he's very smart. He tells stories all the time to me. He has a very good imagination. And I really don't know the stories that he tells. I don't know if they are true or not. Uh, like he says, um, this teacher gets angry at me at school, and that teacher gets angry at me at school with, his, with her eyes. And this one uh, talks to me bad. That one talks to me bad. And when I said, okay, uh, next time that, that you know, we uh, go to school, I'm going to talk to the teacher. And he says, no, don't talk to them. Um, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what to do exactly. Well, yeah, clearly it seems like he's dealing with a lot of anxiety. You mentioned these like fears of of, of something happening, like these consequences, and then also a, he mentioned a separation anxiety. Um, it's good that you're trying to have these conversations with him, and even when it comes to talking to the teacher rather than making it sound like, you know, the teacher is in trouble or I want to go talk to the teacher, you can even say, oh, you know, this, it could be good for us all to go talk with the teacher and we can 
we can see what happened. Maybe the teacher will want to talk to you too. So I, I don't want to make him feel like he's, you know, something bad is going to happen. You're going to go get mad at the teacher or it's going to be some kind of big confrontation, but that we just want to talk about uh, what's going on. Now, when he tells you stories, you want to take them seriously in the sense that you hear him out and you don't tell him it's made up. But I get what you're saying, that it's hard to tell it, what's happening or how much is happening. And more than that, we want to recognize that it's his experience, which is always the case when someone tells us a story, but he maybe the teacher gave him a look. Maybe even the teacher wasn't upset, but to him, the teacher was so mad at me and that look scared him and made him feel very uncomfortable or in a lot of you know fear or not wanting to go back. Clearly, your child has a lot of anxiety. You mentioned genetically he gets it from both sides and these types of intense fears you know that's 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 definitely an anxiety response and we want to keep an eye on that and see how it's developing but also you want to make sure you guys don't contribute to that in any way um it no, seems actually because we know um, we, um because because of the anxiety history in our families me and my husband both try to uh, go on, a, on the opposite direction and not not stress him at all about washing okay. his hands or doing this, doing that. We we uh, I mean let him free on those things and we never talk about getting disease or your tooth is gonna uh, I mean uh, be hurt. Yeah, but I don't know. All of a sudden, like exactly from last Thursday, um, he it started. I mean he started these things and I'm really uh, I'm panicking myself. I don't know what to do about this. Yeah. Now. Well, you know, and I'll say one thing just because you mentioned that. I'm glad you're not doing that. But a lot of times parents think that the way they have to get their kids to do something is out of fear. And it's mm-hmm. it's not a good way to, to get them to do things because it can lead to much more significant consequences yeah. in the long run. So I'd always recommend not using fear. And parents, and I've heard so many Persian parents, they get to extreme. You know, if you do this, your eyes are going to do this or you're, you yeah. know, if you go in the street, someone's going to steal you. And they say exactly. just uh, things that terrify their children. So that's never the way to get them to do something. So I'm glad you're not doing that. Also, you know, I'll say this, some of what you're talking about, although he's so young, we want to keep an eye out specifically for obsessive compulsive disorder. That, that's some of what it does sound like. There's some ideas. I'm not saying he's going to have that or he has that. But we want to keep an eye on that because of some of what you're describing has that quality to it. So I'd want you to be aware of that and keep an eye on that. And and even soon, something like play therapy might be good for him. Something I would would consider for you guys is to take him to see a psychologist, a child psychologist yourself. And then um, have him do play therapy can be helpful for him. And it's really like it sounds. There's a lot of playing going on, so you don't don't have to expect. He might not even really know what it is, and the therapist can explain what they'll do together. But it's something to think about because it seems like his anxiety is pretty significant, and we don't think it's just going to go away. It, it might get okay. worse. So I, I would keep yeah. that in mind. Now, you're saying he hasn't been going to school. What have you guys done with the no, school? No, no, no. I, I, I've been taking him to okay. school, but he goes with cries. I mean, he when, when I want to leave there, he cries, just like the first day's that he was going when he was two, um, but uh, but I don't know I don't know the reason that why he doesn't lo- want to go to school because um, after like after the first initial two weeks that he was crying after that he doesn't even he didn't even say goodbye to me he just run ran to school and he loved mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know what's going on right now and I don't know how to respond to this um, all this anxiety and I don't to- I don't know how to respond to his cries. 
But when he cries, I don't know how to respond. I, uh, I just tell him that I, I'll come back very soon. I'm going to make lunch for you, and I'll come back very soon. And he, actually, he goes there half time, like uh, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., so mm-hmm. it's not that long. Um, well, I mean, for and, for a three, three-and-a-half-year-old, it, it is still a long time. I understand kids go longer than that, but four hours for a child I, is... Do you suggest I like, drop him off later than 9, like around 10 and pick him up earlier well not necessarily i mean if i just wanted to just make that point clear because i think we have to remember that for a kid time has expanded a few times compared to what it is for us no i meant uh, compared to other yes okay yeah that's so you know i'm nine to one i don't want to say for sure make that less it's something to think about but i don't know if i'd say four hours has to be too much um one thing a few things about how to deal with the his anxiety or separation anxiety one thing i always tell parents when there is separation anxiety and just in general actually with your kids always hug them longer than they hug you and by that what i mean is sometimes when kids have separation anxiety we can say they become clingy you know that's how parents feel and they hug us and they don't let go and then sometimes i see even parents they get kind of frustrated and they let go and almost like like okay come on get on with it you know we've been hugging or let go of me but you always want to give your child the feeling that i'm going to be hugging you as long as you want it you let go and you want to be there and I'll be there. So you want to give him that feeling that it's not that you're annoyed or frustrated or even exactly what he's afraid of, that you're going away or that your love won't be there or you won't be there. Yeah, but I never felt that he has separation anxiety. I never walked after they uh, they were born. I was uh, always with them and he never had separation anxiety. He never cried when I, I, when I left somewhere that he was, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, uh, left there. So well, I, you know, I don't think that's bad. I, I think that but the one he said, I miss you, you know, when he said, I miss you. And even you're right, it could be. That's the reason that I, I think that, that that's that's the reason that he wants to, I mean. Um, the reason he gives? Yes, the reason yeah. he gives. It's, so it's possible that that's the case. And maybe, you know, there is possible something. If he's an anxious kid, we have to remember his. Um, he's going to be more sensitive than maybe another child. So something might have happened at school, even if a, ch- a teacher got upset with him. I'm not saying it had to be something extremely traumatic, but something that maybe we don't think is that big of a deal, but to him it affected him a lot. So yeah. it's very possible something did happen. So I would ask him and talk to him about what happened, you know, what, and if, even if you, like I said, if you talk about, you know, having a conversation with a teacher, make it very clear that it's not I'm going to go to tell the teacher she's in trouble or he's in trouble for doing something bad, but it's to understand what happened and maybe there was even miscommunication, but maybe they said they said something you didn't like and I want to understand and help you with that. So don't make him and feel... And do you recommend we do that in front of him? Or you can I mean, I would gauge that. You don't want to make him... You know, for a kid, when you say, we're going to go talk with your teacher... It's a scary thing, you know, like we're going to go talk okay. to the principal. So you want to be aware. I think it would be okay. Maybe talk to the teacher first and have them, especially if you have a good relationship with the teacher and you have faith that he or she will handle it well, then you can do it where it's just, it's a very pleasant, it's a conversation. It's not a confrontation or something really scary. Your child likely is going to really not like that to a strong degree because of how anxious he is. So you want to make it as very pleasant. Oh, we're just going to go talk. We're not going, it's not some big deal or something really scary it's just like i want to talk to your teacher because i know your teacher really likes you and i know you like school a lot but maybe something happened that made you feel uncomfortable or bothered you and you know we're going to go talk to him or her about that and see what he says likely he's going to say no 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 because he's going to be afraid of the confrontation but see how you can communicate with him to make him feel that it can be okay but but i would talk to the teacher either way too whether or not he wants to do it you can do it yourself without him 
um, just to mm-hmm. check in and see how he's how he's doing. How do they say he's doing at school? Uh, he's great. Um, they have cameras. I watch him uh, as soon as I leave the school. Mm-hmm. And he, after I leave, um, uh, after a few minutes of crying, he goes back to his normal. And um, I asked the teachers in this couple of days. They said he's a little bit down, mm-hmm. but uh, but he's fine. I okay. mean, he's not crying or he's not uh, mentioning even me there that I miss my mom or something. But yeah. I feel that he's like he has depression or something. He's, Ma- he's a little down. He, maybe uh, he is. I mean, you know, I don't want to say that, like use the word, you know, it's not about the diagnosis for me, but he might be a little down. Anxiety and depression, of course. Um, go very much hand in so hand. Is it, no, so is it possible at this age to to have that? To have a depression? Depression yeah. or this much of anxiety? Of I mean, course, is it, uh, of course, yeah. I mean, children, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you might not be able to, di- or you won't diagnose a kid with major depressive di- disorder at three years of age, but of course they can show that in anxiety, of course. Kids much younger than that show anxiety. I mean, again, it's not about giving a clear diagnosis, but what you're describing, there's an obsessiveness to it. There definitely is an OCD quality to it, even like with the washing hands, or if I don't do this, this really bad thing is going to happen. That's why I'm saying the OCD is something I want you to keep an eye on um, mm-hmm. because of that connection there, and there seems to be something there. But another thing I would highly recommend to you, and this is for all parents also, is that we want to make sure he doesn't feel bad about his anxiety. So... Uh-huh. You and his father have to make sure you don't make him feel judged or that he's doing something bad or, you know. So it's when he talks, when he asks me, mommy, if I eat that, this chocolate or if I, he always, he always uh, asks, if I eat 10 chocolates, uh, what's going to happen to my tooth? Or uh, if, if I watch too much TV, what's going to happen to my eye? Or what should I, how, how should I respond? I, w- I mean, I would just tell him pretty much what is the truth, which is really nothing. I mean, I, you know, I would tell him, oh, no, if you have chocolates, okay, and... We just we brush our teeth every night, no matter what we eat. But it doesn't matter, and then that that helps our teeth stay healthy. But it's okay because he's probably heard someone say, "Oh, candy is bad for your teeth." And then to him, rather than that just meaning that, well, if you have candy and you don't brush your teeth, that can lead to cavities. It's almost like this idea that as he's eating the chocolate, it's like going to melt his teeth away and make them, you know, fall apart. Because his anxiety again, that's like this fear response or this fear that it's something really tragic is going to happen. Like I have to avoid this really bad, bad thing. So you have to just mm-hmm. calm, you know, you'll try to reassure him. The, the problem is, you know, you'll reassure him, reassure him, but a lot of times kids will find that there's always going to be something new for them to worry about, just like with adults. And so you yeah. have to be ready for that, that this might just be his mentality. Okay, now he knows chocolate's okay, but then, yeah, it's the TV. If it's not the TV, then it's about, you know, sleeping. And if it's not this, it's, a, you know, there might be, there's probably going to be something, and that's why I would keep, a you know, an eye on that, I would recommend play therapy even now because I think it's a, it could be a good thing and have a psychologist work with them and see what they think. Um, and also you and your husband also have to make sure you guys have your own anxiety. What can also happen is because our kids might exhibit things that we ourselves have that we don't like, we can almost react to their emotions. And that's what I was saying about we want to make sure we don't make him feel bad about it. Like, oh, you're worrying about something else again. What are you worrying about now? What are you scared about now? And sometimes parents, even unconsciously or in subtle ways, give this message to their kid. Your son is not trying to worry about things. You know, your son is not trying to be difficult. It's just these things just pop into his mind automatically. And even we know the brains of people who have things like OCD and anxiety, they are a little different. There's differences we can see. So it's like if you walk into your room and someone is hot and someone else is cold, 
you can't blame them for that reaction. That's just how their, their body is responding. This is how his brain is responding to different things. So I want to make sure you recognize that and make him not feel judged for his feeling or this idea that you shouldn't be scared or stop being scared of things because it's not in his control. You want to reassure him and make him feel good, but not make him feel guilty or ashamed of having these emotions. And um, um, is this, I mean, um, anxiety and if he has OCD or something, uh, are these things treatable or uh, is this going to stay with him? Well, you know, something like OCD, in a way, it's something like a lifelong thing. doesn't mean you have to suffer really badly. And again, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because he doesn't necessarily have it, but it's something to keep an eye on. But, you know, treatment is going to be necessary, likely with medication and therapy both. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves to give him that diagnosis, but yes, that's something to think about um, because the medication in a lot of times is needed because the way the brain is wired for someone who has OCD, a lot of us have these uh, types of thoughts that might pop into our head that might be we might get concerned about. With someone with OCD, it's like that tape gets stuck on a loop and they can't turn that tape off. So they just keep thinking about what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this and that same thing over and over again? That's how the obsession forms. And then they, they have the compulsions to help try to remove that feeling or to give them a reassurance in that moment to, to put out that fire, so to speak, of how they're thinking about something, worrying about something. So, you know, that is something if he if that's something he develops, you want to be aware of therapy can help. Meditation can also help, as it does with anyone of just kind of calming the reactivity of the brain. You can even start meditation with him pretty soon. You know, there's there's kindergartens and preschools that, that implement meditation and mindfulness for kids, and that can be helpful also, something okay. else to consider. But, you know, the way you're describing your child, that the anxiety is high. And we want, that's something that means probably he's going to have anxiety his whole life, just like you and your husband have anxiety still. It doesn't disappear. Yeah. You can manage it and make it less. But usually with these types of things, they don't just disappear. We want to learn how to best live with them, but also how to treat it to make it less and more manageable. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you for calling. Okay. Uh, do you have any recommendation for um, children's therapy? I, I mean, I work with children myself. Um, I, I know a few. I don't have their numbers okay. offhand. Yeah, sorry. yeah. But I would definitely, you know, make sure it's someone who specializes in working with children. You can even ask around or ask your, the child's school. They might have some ideas. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, go from there. Okay, great. Thank you very much sure. for your time. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. calling. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to our next caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. You're talking to me, Doctor. Yes, I am. Thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. And thank you for the um, very useful program that you have. And 
Um, I use it all the time. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Dr. Farid, I have, uh, um, I'm going to talk with you about two of my problems that I don't know if they are connected to each other or not. Okay. First one is uh, my concentration. I'm almost 60 years old. Um, I have been in the United States for 14 years. Um, you know, same being, I have been single mother since 28. I raised my daughter, uh, who still lives with me. She's 30 years old. Uh, the, the concentration is that I used to read uh, a lot of books and, you know, magazines, uh, texts, but um, at the moment I can concentrate. You know, if I want to read a, you know, article, I go in the, you know, from the beginning, I read two lines, and then I go to the middle. I have no patience, you know, to finish it and go line by line. And I really suffer that because I used to read books a lot. I have a lot of unread books that I can't do that. Um, Do you want me to... No, sure, uh, let me... I'll make a few comments about that part, and we can make connections. So... You know, concentration is one of those things um, that has that can have a lot of different causes in, in psychology. When we look at it in psychology, so for example, if you have ADHD, we know of course that leads to issues related to concentration. But also, depression affects your ability to concentrate and and have sustained attention. Anxiety makes it hard for you to th- stay focused on something. And of course, there can be medical concerns too that have that can have that result. So it's hard to say one thing very easily now something like adhd we know that it shows up in childhood or there should be signs of it from childhood and if you're saying you had the ability to easily read books and sustain your attention and now it's changing as an adult then likely we we could say it's probably not adhd it makes it easier to rule that out so i would look more at things like depression and anxiety another I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, to tell you more about myself, um, I haven't been like this. Uh, This has been uh, mostly happening. uh, I don't know if it's uh, kind of uh, related to the menopause, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I was told by one of my colleagues that, you know, it is kind of related. But... um, um, I can tell you that um, I can't even concentrate on my thoughts. I can't, um, you know, when I want to think about something, you know, like different things are racing uh, each other, and I can't concentrate on them, and you don't know how my, uh, my brain flies from uh, one subject to another subject and from, you know, different time even in the past or in the future, you know, they are all mixed, and um, I actually can't concentrate to that. Yeah. And another thing is that... Now, one thing is menopause can lead to issues with like things like memory and concentration. So th- there could be something there. Um, so I don't want... So there, that, that could be part of what you're dealing with. I'm sorry? Menopause can lead to issues related to things like um, memory or concentration. So that could be part of what you're you're dealing with. Um, of course, it depends on the degree, and I would also just talk to your doctor about that and what you're experiencing. But I could see how it'd be distressing for you, especially someone who you're saying you enjoyed reading and could read quite easily, and are having a harder 
time. So that's something there could be just a natural uh, experience that you're having now related to the menopause, which we want to keep that in mind. But we do also want to look at things like depression and anxiety. Have you noticed the change in your mood or do you feel like either one of those you can relate to having more depression or more anxiety recently? I don't think I have depression, but um, I think that I am, um, you know, an anxious person. Uh-huh. And I have always been because I have been single mother um, since age 28, and I have I had to be responsible from my daughter. I wanted her to to be in a good condition, so um, I have always been worried, you know, to make life for uh, us. Nobody has been helping us, and when we came to the immigrated to the United States, you know, we started all over, and you know, it added up, to, oh, you know, to my anxiety. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, overall, I am satisfied with my life. Um, now I think I have a good life. I am in peace, um, and I'm 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 happy. I'm okay. I'm a happy person, even though you know I'm I have always been. Uh, I don't know what you call it in English. And uh, I'm not a you know I I I don't want more than this. I just want a peace, and uh, you know nothing more, but. Uh, Still, I think I'm, you know, anxious. I'm, I'm anxious about, you know, some, okay. you know, uh, something that, you know, goes to my daughter's life, you know, sometimes, and you know what her future would be. Okay, so the, there is some definitely some anxiety. You mentioned being overall content with life, but it doesn't mean maybe you got content with what you had because you felt like you had to accept what you had, but maybe you wanted more. So that's something to to consider that you thought, well, I can't have anything else. Let me be happy with what I have. doesn't mean you definitely felt fulfilled in your life. So that's something I want you to, to keep in mind. But so as far as the memory and the concentration goes, you know, look up the, read about it yourself, the the menopause and the connection, because I've seen articles on that myself. And maybe that'll give you some understanding of what you're dealing with, that this is something that does happen. For many people, they do experience that issues of forgetting and also issues related to concentration. I would also recommend meditation because some of what you're talking about, you know, you read the first few lines, you go to the middle, you go to the end. It seems like that could be something where the patience isn't there, the ability to stay with what you're doing. It could be related to what you're dealing with, but meditation is something that essentially it's like an exercise that makes you stronger in this sense, stronger in your ability to focus your attention. So I would highly recommend that. Have you tried meditation before? Um, yeah, kind of. Okay, we'll kind we'll we'll kind of make that out of from kind of to more regular. Think of it as an exercise that's going to increase your this thing that you that is distressing you the issue with attention and concentration. So think of it as something that's going to help. But it's like exercise. So if you want to make your muscles stronger, you don't just do one you know, one time on the treadmill and expect to be a lot stronger. The same is going to be true of meditation. It's going to take time, but the research shows that it does have a positive effect. Uh, So it just takes time, just like exercise, to build that strength, but you will be able to do that. So that's something you can do in order to to build your ability to concentrate, hopefully build it back. Um, Is 
um, is there any medication that I can take that, you know, improves my concentration? I mean, I'm sure there are something like any medication that treats ADHD would probably help you. But um, I don't know if it's that, that's necessary. You know, it depends on how much it's affecting you. And it doesn't sound like, uh, from my perspective, that you have ADHD because it would have shown signs earlier. But that's something, again, you can talk to your doctor about to weigh the cost-benefit of, of taking something. I would recommend first doing something like meditation because that doesn't have side effects and is just helpful for you. Um, before going straight to a medication to deal with that. And I would still think about the anxiety and depression and how you're feeling, and if that's having some effect. You might be, again, content with your life, but is there more that you want? Either and We could talk about that. When it comes, let's say, personally, how do you feel about the relationships in your life? Um, I have disconnected, you know, any, you know... Um, after my marriage, um, you know, I was dating, you know, with two people for, for um, like some years. But after that, you know, I um, didn't have actually time and I didn't want, and I, because I had bad experience, I didn't want to interact in any other uh, uh, main relation. Okay. Now, I mean, when you say because of time, uh, to me, it sounds more like an excuse, but more that you didn't want to, like you're saying at the end, that because of yeah, your bad maybe. experiences. Yeah. yeah okay. Maybe. So you I had some bad experiences. I had very bad experience from my, you know, uh, you know, marriage, and you know, after that, you know, two relations that I was in. But um, I tried to engage myself in other activities, uh, and I was, you know, when we traveled to United States, I was, I had a couple of jobs that, you know, I was, you know. Um, you know, occupying all the time. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I would say it seems like there's definitely some pain there from what you went through. And I'm not saying you have to be in a relationship to be happy, but maybe somewhere you do want to have someone, but you're afraid or your past experiences have made you think it's not possible or it's just going to hurt you. And, and so you've, you've kind of closed off that part of your life. So again, you've maybe learned to become content with what you have, but maybe you actually do want more and something right. that you can have. Uh, so I would recommend going also to therapy to look at some of that too. It seems like you're holding on to a lot of pain. You've learned how to survive, but maybe not necessarily thrive the way you want to, to live your life. Right. Uh, Dr. Farid, is there any relation between concentration and forgetfulness? Well, definitely, because, I mean, if we're talking about past memories, that's different. But when you talk about concentration and forgetfulness, if you're not paying attention to something, you're not going to remember it. So, for example, when people talk about meeting people, some people say, oh, I'm so bad with names, I never remember names. It's not just that they're not remembering the names. Very often they never heard it the first time because they weren't paying attention. This is especially true with people who have social anxiety or anxious in social situations. They're saying hi to so many people and they're so concerned with their own presentation and what they say that they don't even hear people's names. And you ask them, oh, they see someone and they don't even they have no idea. And it's not that they forgot. It's that they actually didn't really hear it the first time. They didn't give it attention. So absolutely, if you're not concentrating and your attention is not there, you're not going to remember things because you're not taking them in. So there definitely is that a, a big connection there. I see. Okay. Um, do I have time to bring my second problem? Sure. How about this? Because we're at a commercial break, let's sure. go to the commercial break, and after the break, we'll get sure. into that sure. second okay. issue. 
Okay. All right. Studio number 310-4410-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We will be right back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Before the break, we were with the caller. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Dr. Fayez Holakui. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, giving me a second chance to talk to you. <laughs> sure, it's still your first chance. We're just getting into a second topic, but thank you for calling. Um, yeah, let's hear what else you had in mind. Actually, um, th- another problem that I have with myself is that I force myself to do something all the time like uh, some people tell me some people some friends tell me that you don't know how to rest and if I take a rest if I like uh, sit and watch a movie uh, I think that I'm wasting my time and I feel guilty mm-hmm. uh, and if, you know I'm usually I'm doing multiple uh, you know works you know, even when I'm and I'm uh, driving, and um, well, that I, yeah, that that itself is not safe. But yeah, go go ahead. Um, that's it. You know, I, you know, I feel guilty. You know, if I even though my sleep is not bad, but I wake up constantly and think, oh my God, it's late. You know, mm-hmm. if I try, if I try to stay in bed because I'm tired, I have I'm gone <clears throat> to bed very late, and I want to. Um, in bed, you know, in the morning a little bit more. It's like somebody is telling me, get up, get up, time is passing, you know, you, you have no time, you're losing time. And, you know, some, some, it's like someone is talking to me all the time. And sometimes, Dr. Hulakui, I'm not joking, I think, I wish my head had a switch which I could, you know, turn it off yeah. and rest sometimes. Yeah, well, there's a lot in what you just talked about. Definitely, there, you know, that that switch. A lot of people which wish they had that switch. I'll be honest, meditation is a big part of that, but there's a lot more than that going on. So I want to mention, you know, a lot of what you said. Um, you know, you said there's that voice in your head. That voice in your head now is your own, but very likely it's a voice you internalized from your past, and that's something I do want to ask you about. And almost the feeling is like you're a worker. You're supposed to be working all the time. And if you're not working, you're being bad. But that's not just how you see your job. You see your life that way, that you constantly have to be doing something, quote unquote, being productive. And I see a lot of that in today's day and age. People think that they have to do something, quote unquote, productive and not waste time, not realizing that as humans, we need rest, we need leisure, we need to enjoy ourselves and, and connect with people. And that's all a part of being a human being rather than just a human doing, which means you have to do a bunch of things. Uh, we can have, unfortunately, that mindset that I have to be giving something. And if I'm not giving or doing something, then I'm nothing or you know, people won't love me. Now, when I say that voice inside your head telling you you have to keep doing something, you don't get to rest or relax, do you feel like your parents had that type of a mindset with you? Did you get that from them? Uh, 
Okay. My mother uh, is actually wise. She's not able now, but uh, she was like this, and you know, she used to, you know, uh, make herself busy with something, you know, all the time. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's it. And uh, well, that's something yeah, we definitely learn these things from, uh, especially if it's a same-sex parent. That could be even more you modeled after her. But this idea that you have to constantly be doing not just one thing, many things to be a good woman and a good mom or good wife also. Um, and, and maybe you internalize that, that I have to constantly be doing so many things. To begin with, when we're doing more than one thing at a time, sometimes people think they're being more productive by multitasking. But what it usually means or almost what it does mean is you're going to do all of those things at a less than high quality than you can do in any of them alone and usually are not doing a good thing. And that also has to do with concentration. Sometimes people do three different things at a time because they actually can't just focus on one thing at a time. They can't give all their attention to one thing. And that's actually, rather than a strength that many people think that they multitask, it's actually a weakness. They can't handle doing one thing. And then even... Interrupt you. Something else is that uh, I am a perfectionist. I want to do something, you know, everything. I want to do everything in a perfect possible way. Um, If you tell me, like, uh, to file some papers, I want to do it in a most perfect way that uh, you can imagine. It may take more, but I will do my very best. And this this happens for everything, you know, hard work, you know, relation with others. I want to uh, be the best. Well, Not the best. I want to do it in the best. Right. Way. Well, I mean that that's uh, you know again this sense that what I was bringing up before I didn't maybe finish the thought of the self esteem and the way you look at yourself is you have to be giving something and if you do it if you make a mistake somehow you're not going to be good or lovable or something is wrong with you. And you have to be perfect, which no one ever is. And so you're going to constantly be disappointed in your in yourself. And you said your mom was someone who was that way too, as far as doing a lot of things. But how did your mom and dad, how do you feel like they treated you? When I say these things about self-esteem, when you look to your own past, what do you think? Um, my, my father and my mother were very different. My mother uh, was a religious, very religious. Mm-hmm. My my uh, father was very open-minded and, you know, didn't believe in anything, just in nature. And, um, you know, he treated us much better. Um, but my mother was, you know, you know, sometimes blaming us that uh, not that much. I don't remember that much, but, uh, you know, definitely my father was uh, treating us, you know, much better. So your father was treating you better than your mother. How did your mother treat you that was not good? Uh, you, you know, uh, um, she was, you know, expecting, you know, us to do a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, do your uh, time, your homework on time. And, uh, um, yeah, about our, you know, clothes, you know, you need to be your closet should be all the time, you know, perfect. And uh, this is what I, I remember. I don't remember much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, it, it seems like, and that's maybe that voice you have inside of your own head now, that 
you have to be doing, you shouldn't be resting, everything has to be perfect. You know, that, that seems like definitely your mom's voice. Unfortunately, we internalize that voice from our parents and become our own parent within our head. We can use it in the language of transactional analysis. But basically, then we start to treat ourselves in that way. And it seems like you're like that with yourself now that it, like you're saying if you're resting, want to watch a movie and, and quote unquote, do something not productive, it's seen as something bad where we have to accept that as a human being, you need uh, it feels good to be productive. Absolutely. But we also need rest, relaxation, leisure, enjoyment, social time and many other things that we actually need to devote time to each one of them, not try to combine them and multitask them. So unfortunately, now you see people, husbands and wives are having a conversation, but one of them or both of them are on their phones doing other things, checking emails or, you know, going on their social media, and they're not having that conversation. They're not even giving 100% to that. So clearly, you have some issues related to what you, you went through as a child that you're carrying with you today and how you view yourself. And also what I was saying before, as far as, you know, you said you're content, which I can believe, but it seems like also you've become content by sacrificing yourself to a certain degree or even sacrificing what you want or need and maybe even denying it to yourself what you do want yourself. And I don't think you even have a connection to that anymore, that you think you're, I'm, I'm happy and content with whatever life gives me. But maybe you're not. And even in your relationships, you mentioned having bad experiences. But I could see you being in a relationship and being there more for your husband than allowing him to be there for you. And maybe even you chose men that were that way. But, you know, having those types of relationships, well, of course, being in a relationship just seems like something where you give and don't get much back. Why would you want to be in something like that? Whereas likely you'd like to be in a relationship where someone gets to take care of you, too. Yeah, but, you know, I always thought that, you know, my dad uh, doesn't have uh, her father, uh, so I don't want she loses me because, you know, no man, nobody can love her as much as um, I do. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What do you mean no man can love her as much as you love her? I mean, as no man as my husband, my partner. Well, of course, but they're not. Well, they're not supposed to. I thought you meant even for herself and in her own partner. No, no, her own. I'm not talking about her own partner. You know, of course, of course, you know, everybody can love her. But I didn't want to get married, and you know, be. Uh, be I had several, you know, good opportunities to get married again, but I didn't want to get married again because of my daughter. I. I didn't want anybody between me and her, and... Uh, but that's but that's kind of a problem. I mean, you know, in, in a few ways. One is you're sending her the message that you sacrifice yourself for other people, and I get for your kid you do it to an extent, but your daughter's 30 now. Uh, she doesn't need you to... She needs to not spend that much time with you. No, no, not... not I'm not talking about now. Okay, now but... I don't but you're want to you know, be a relation. I don't want to get married because, you know, I think um, I'm good. I'm good, you know, the, the way that I am. But I'm not saying you're not good. That's not my argument. But I think from what you're expressing, you want more and you would want something. Uh, that's the feeling I get from talking to you. But you almost tell yourself you don't and you can put that away. And even before, I don't think, you know, not getting married was something that was just for your daughter. Part of it might have been for yourself. But I don't think sacrificing yourself for someone else is, is going to work in this 
the way that you're describing it. And hopefully it didn't even give your daughter this message too, because she hopefully can find someone and not feel like she has to be the type of woman you thought you had to be to make her happy or to make your, your ex-husband's happy or ex-husband happy either. So, I mean, I hope you don't give her that message that she has to be that way too. Oh, believe me, no, she, she has been in different relations and uh, she may now get married, you know, soon. But uh, I don't think this has, uh, this thought has any impact on her. Um, well, it's possible it doesn't, but I want you to see how the way your mom was, even if you maybe didn't realize it, impacted the way you are. So we have to always be aware that our children do learn a lot from us in how we, we interact with them and interact with other people. They see it much more than what we explicitly tell them ourselves. So I would think about that for yourself. What what else do you want in your life? What might not be there? Because I, I like I said, the feeling I get when you were talking about yourself and your life is that you learn to be content with what you have, but you also learn to put away what you actually want and not even pay attention to that just to make things work. That's be, right. That's absolutely right. I have killed, you know, all the other feelings in my uh, myself and, you know, tried, you know, to, um, to do whatever I thought it's right, which it, it hasn't been the right thing, but, you know... Um, I am content with my life, but as you said, I, you know, I may need more. Um, yeah, I think absolutely. And I'm actually, you know, it's interesting as you were saying that you're content with your life. Are you content with yourself? Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. That's very important, you know, to feel good about yourself. I mentioned in, the, I think, the previous segment, but it might, it's a good idea for you to go to therapy to look a little bit more at all of these issues that you have and to get even more in touch with yourself and what else it might be that you actually do want for yourself and then to give it to yourself. Your daughter's 30 now. She has her own life and should have her own life and you should be focused on what makes you happy. You always should have been, but I would say even more recognizing that you don't have someone dependent on you. You have to focus on making yourself happy and you might even recognize there's so much you've wanted but never even allowed yourself to try to give it to yourself. And and you, it's never, it's not too late. You you deserve to give that to yourself now. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. I really appreciate your time, Doctor. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you calling in. Wish you all the best. Take good care of yourself. Very useful, and I learned a lot. Thank you. Oh, very good. Much. I enjoyed talking. You have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. We've reached our next commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Doctor Fadi Dolakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Started off the show talking about the book, A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello, and I got to give a little bit of a summary there of the book and some of my own thoughts, but I did want to talk a little bit more about some of the important issues that the book talks about, because, or doesn't really get into, but brings up, for example, the idea of our in-group versus the out-group, the us versus them, and the responsibility that I think parents have to teach their kids about this us-them distinction. 
your children definitely pay very close attention to you and everything that you're doing. Uh, I just was with a family friend last week who has a, a baby who's almost one, and he was telling me that it's amazing. He sees how she definitely picks up on everything that's going on, even though she can't really verbalize anything. But she sees what's happening, and he's aware that how much she takes in, like a sponge of their interactions between him and his wife, and other things that are going on. And the and kids very much pay attention to what we are doing. And just because you tell them something, if you act in other ways, they see that. And the reason why I bring this up is because children are come into this world and they don't really see the distinctions that we see, the way that we see them, even when we think they are very obvious. I, I shared the story a couple months ago about two very cute uh, boys who were best friends. One was African-American, one was Caucasian, and the one of the boys wanted to get a haircut to make it just like his friend's haircut and thought the teacher wouldn't be able to tell them apart. And he was so excited to go trick the teacher. Now, we see that story and we think it's cute and we almost laugh because we think it's so obvious that a black and a white child will be distinguished as different automatically because of their skin color. But to this child, he didn't see it that way. And although we almost laugh at him, he can just as easily laugh at us that we make such distinctions like this so important. And so for parents, what I'm asking is, you're very responsible for the way you, or you have this big, almost power or influence on how your children are going to view who is us and who is them. Who am I going to consider uh, people I care about and who do I see as different in a negative way and I don't want to care about them. So to begin with first, we can't just fake it to them. We have to work on it ourselves. And what that first means is we have to acknowledge our own racist beliefs, tendencies, thoughts, and, and to take that a step further, even recognizing that we all are racist to a degree. No one, uh, you know, everyone sees race in adult humans. They all see it. So this idea of a post-racial America or post-racial um, idealism where you don't see race anymore, we're, we're definitely not there. Is it possible we get there? Yes, but definitely we're not there right now. So we definitely see race. It does exist. And all of us, you know, whether we'd like to believe it or not, hold on to some beliefs about groups that are automatic judgments that we make without even thinking about them almost unconsciously. And there are tests that can help measure this that you can do um, online where you can see that you tend to react differently to different groups when they're associated with different positive or negative words. And this reflects this implicit bias that you have against certain people or maybe for certain groups that we have to be aware of. So you have to accept as any individual, but even as a parent, that I have some racist tendencies or thoughts in myself and that this is okay in the sense that yes we all have them but it doesn't mean you have to you should ignore it we then have to work on that so as a parent yourself i talked last week about preparing yourself for parenthood in various ways including working with your partner together to make sure you are ready for parenthood but here's another way that i didn't bring up last week that you want to think about how do I see various groups? Because 
whether you want to or not, you're very likely going to pass those beliefs on to your kids just by offhand comments you make, the way they see you respond to different people. Even you've probably seen this when you see a baby as they start to have things like stranger anxiety, or even as they get older, they look to their parents to see if someone is safe or not. Someone comes to give them a hug and you see that the baby or the young child a little bit anxious look at mom and dad to see is this person safe or not. And based on your reaction, they're going to respond. If you're smiling and you have this very happy face, they're going to feel more comfortable. But if you look a little bit tense, they're going to freak out and think this person is not safe. So you teach your children who is okay and who is not okay. And I would hope that all parents recognize that giving them the message that everyone is okay in the sense that all groups are worthy of love and respect and are human beings and deserve human rights and all that comes with that is a message that you want to make sure you are giving your children. So first we have to address our own feelings of racism and really be willing to face it. Most people, because it's so taboo or because uh, I think one of the issues we're having is that it's good that we talk about race and being sensitive to cultural issues, sexuality, and all of those things. That's wonderful. But one thing we've done is we've made it harder for people to talk about these things because we're so judgmental about these things. So if someone uses the wrong word, maybe out of ignorance, which I'm not saying is totally okay, but they don't have ill intent, we jump on them and say, how dare you use this term when you're supposed to use this term now? And people don't even know, and they're afraid to even start asking to find what the right term is. For example, with the transgender community, this is newer in the sense that it's becoming more public and people are talking about it, which is very good. But also people are afraid to talk about it because sometimes they're afraid of what words they're supposed to use or not use. So someone might not know that people who, if they're biologically male but identify as female, they want to be called she. That's the pronoun they prefer, but someone might not know that. And until we allow them to even express that they don't know that, they won't get to learn to then use the term that is preferred by that individual. So we have to allow for people to have conversations and not be so quick to judge one another. I think part of that is actually the fact that because, as I was saying, we ourselves have racist or different type of prejudice thinking within ourselves, when we see it in someone else, because we have our own guilt or shame about that, we like to beat them up about it, make them feel very bad. And we see this in other ways too. It's kind of like a projection. So because we see something that we have within ourselves that we don't like in someone else, we jump on them and make them feel horrible about it and say bad things, almost in a way, the way we expect a racist to respond to a race they don't like. We talk to people in this way and judge them, say, how dare you say that you're a bad person, you're this, that, and the other, rather than recognizing sometimes it could be ignorance or something they don't know yet. They don't have exposure. They don't have the knowledge. Again, it's up to us to gain the knowledge over time, but to judge someone for not knowing something is not a good idea. So first, we have to accept that we have these ourselves and work on them. If you're someone who's racist towards another group, I would invite you to really look at that more critically. Where does that come from? Where did I come with this idea? Of course, uh, the media and society play a big part in that. So we recognize we've gotten hundreds and thousands of messages about different races by the time you reach adulthood, maybe even millions of messages. And so that plays a big part, but then also looking at your own life and then also who you're interacting with. As I mentioned in the first segment, when we work together with someone from uh, someone that we consider a them, they start to become like us. You feel that they are part of your group when you work with them and you interact with them. So just because you have a racist belief or thoughts doesn't mean they last 
forever. They definitely can change if you work on them and you actually look at what you have going on and what you're thinking. And at the same time, we want to make sure we pass that message on to your children. So you have to be hyper aware of the messages you give your kids about different groups. I think most families can recall hearing things from either grandparents or their parents about different groups that clearly gave a message about what they thought about them. And children learn that that's what they should be thinking too. When parents tell their children something, it's not just an opinion or an idea. They hear it as a truth. And this is actually why it's so important for parents, the way they talk to their children about themselves, because they internalize that. So many adults have poor self-esteem for no other reason than the fact that their their parents, when they were children, made them feel that they weren't very valuable or something was not okay about them. Even a judgment about themselves, they fully internalize and believe as a truth. Now imagine what they think when you tell them, oh, you know, people from that group, they're not very good or they're bad or they're, uh, you know, going to do this, that or the other and you shouldn't like them. They take that as a truth. So I, I would hope that most parents have the objective of raising children who are global citizens, meaning that they see the whole world as their us, not that there is a them that is most other people and us is a very small group. That to me is a very unhealthy mindset and hurts someone much more than recognizing the equality of the human race or that all people deserve that type of respect. Now, we can talk about different types of groups. Of course, there's racial discrimination, there's religious uh, discrimination and prejudices, there's um, prejudice versus uh, when it comes to sexuality. Another one that's very important for me is the way that people deal with different groups of people, such as the homeless. And for example, that's one that many people, unfortunately, have a very easy time dehumanizing and seeing as less than human. So your children are going to see how do you interact with homeless people if there are homeless people where you are living. Are you treating them with respect that they actually definitely deserve? Or are you judging them and having some reaction of disgust towards them? Or even talking about them as somehow less than human, using uh, derogatory terms to talk about them or talking about how they're so bad and bad for society. I would hope that you teach your children that all people are worthy of respect and are worthy of living in conditions that are okay and actually how these people are living is not okay and show care, compassion, and concern for all individuals and including homeless individuals. Sometimes parents ask me, well, I want my kid to be thinking about other people, to be you know, humanitarian in their mindset and the actions that they do. How can I instill that in my children? Well, one way is you have to live it. You know, they, you have to practice what you preach. Just telling them doesn't work. But I've also seen parents, for example, think, well, you know, my kid living in Beverly Hills or living in Westwood or Brentwood and somewhere nice doesn't really know what people go through. I'm going to drive through a poor neighborhood just to show them what people go through. Now, the intention I can understand where it's coming from, and I don't think that's bad, but in a way they do that almost like saying this us and them. Look at these people like they're going to a museum of poor people and driving through the neighborhood and saying, look at this, and then they drive away and just hope that the children are affected and now maybe don't ask for as many toys or the newest iPhone because they see that some people are poorer than them. I think it's good for everyone to have that perspective of knowing that 
people are suffering and there is this going on. So that part I get, but I would much rather you do something with your children where they interact with these people and build a human connection, interact with whatever group you think you want to show them or expose them to in a way that shows these are human beings just like me and you. They're worthy of love and respect. They're very good people and kind people, and you can have a nice friendship with them because everyone is a us. There isn't a them. So if you want to give your children this idea of giving is good, you have to give yourself and also do giving behaviors with them. Um, I think it's really wonderful. I see it sometimes where families do community service together and it has so many positive effects from the bonding that the family has together, from um, doing something good that makes each individual feel good, creating memories together and creating this mindset that we're a family, we're the culture of our family includes helping other people and caring about other people. And that's something we'll take forward. And that's something your kids will never forget. So I know parents try to think of activities they can do with their kids, different things they can do. But one I would hope they incorporate as a family is doing community service together. It could just be an hour a month or a week or however you can make it work. But something consistent that you do with your family as a family that really shows yourself and also especially your kids that this is the type of people that we are. And especially when you interact with people that maybe seem different from you, it gives them that message again that we as a family don't see a us and them. We see everyone as us and we want to help everyone because of that. And we know, as I was discussing in the book, that when we see people as a us, then our feelings of morality, our feeling of sympathy and empathy can extend to them, that we see them as people that we care about, people that we want to help, people that we see as equal to ourselves. And that's very, very important. Parents sometimes think they have to give their kids this message that they're so wonderful and amazing and actually that they're better than other people. But that's doing them a huge disservice. What you want to teach your kids is that they're valuable and very special and very important, but so is everyone on this planet. Everyone deserves that feeling and deserves that feeling of love and respect. And what better way to do that than to show that we care and help everyone in this family, we want to help everyone that we can. We want to have that mindset. So I think one of the biggest gifts you can give your children is this mindset of one, that we're all equal, that all people are part of us and they all deserve our, our respect. And also that we want to help all people because we see them as a us and extend that feeling of there is no them. The whole world is an us and they are, are all part of our human family. And because of that, we have concern and care for them and give them that mindset. They actually will get a lot more out of that and give a lot more in their lives if you're able to do that rather than to try to teach them the things you think you've learned about the world and who's good and who's bad, most of which is based on your own biases that you might not even be aware of. So as parents, you're responsible to help your children become aware of the mindset they have in the world, the space they fill in that world as far as someone who can help make things better, and the way they view the brothers and sisters on this planet that they have as being part of an us rather than them. All right, we've reached our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back.
back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. You know, it's the beginning of summer, and lots of people are graduating, and congratulations to all the different graduates from high school, college, graduate schools, whatever it might be. And it made me think of something I sometimes hear when people see someone accomplishing something. Very often I'll see people when they they hear someone graduated or they've had some big accomplishments, they say, oh, they're so lucky. They're so lucky to be done or to have this degree or whatever it might be. And I always think when they say that, well, do they realize it wasn't luck that got them to their accomplishment? It was a lot of hard work. And this is the mindset that sometimes people have of that you're going to get lucky or somehow get somewhere just because it fell into your lap and not realizing that that actually isn't the case. Anything you really want, you have to work very hard to get there. And that's why I want to talk about this last segment about hard work and the fact that only through hard work do we get to our goals do or do we achieve anything that is meaningful. And yes, there definitely is luck in life. I think when we look at how people things turn out, or even I'm a big fan of sports, and you can say, well, this team won the championship or didn't. And sometimes there are things that luck plays a part in. You can see a little moment here and there could have changed everything, but they went one way and it favored one team or the other team. So there is luck in life, but it doesn't mean that luck is the biggest factor and there's much more in our control. So if we remember what Stephen Covey talked about in the seven habits of highly effective people, we have a circle of concern, things that affect us or that we care about. But within that, there's a circle of influence, things that we can control and are, that we have influence over. And we want to expand that and make that as much as we can. So there is some luck, but when it comes to someone getting a degree or someone uh, achieving a big goal to attribute it all to luck is a mistake. And it's not recognizing what it took for them to get there, but also what it will take for yourself to get there as well. So we have to understand, yes, there is luck, but I'm not going to concern myself with or focus on that because that's not in my control. I'm going to focus on everything that is in my control, which is a whole lot when it comes to most of our goals and most of the things that we want to accomplish. Uh, I was talking about parents instilling in children this idea of morality or the us and them and seeing the whole world as a us before the break. But this is another place where parents can play a big role in getting their kids to see that it takes hard work to get to whatever they want to achieve. And especially getting to see that not because you're just so amazing or you're so great are you going to accomplish goals, but because you're going to work hard, you can achieve whatever you want. And so this relates to uh, the book Mindset that I talked about before by, I think it was Carol Dweck, if I'm remembering correctly the author's name, but this idea that rather than having a fixed mindset that because you're so smart or because you're so talented, you're going to be successful or that's why you achieved something like a good grade on a test, but rather having a growth mindset that it's because you worked so hard, you studied so many hours that you got the good grade on the test. And something just as subtle as that, and both of them you might say good job, but what you say after it and how you explain why they did a good job can really have a huge effect on how they see themselves and how they will then dedicate their time and focus on 
facing challenges, embracing failure, or being afraid of those things, and because of that, not trying very much. So when we have the fixed mindset, we just think, okay, I got a good grade because I'm smart. And actually that puts a lot of pressure on the next test because if I get a bad grade, that means, well, I'm not smart or I'm dumb. Um, whereas when you have a growth mindset, you think, okay, I got an A because I studied hard. If you get a C on the next test, you think, well, it's not because I'm dumb or anything that's fixed in me. It's that I didn't try hard enough. I didn't study enough or I didn't study the right way. So we want to have this growth mindset that we definitely instill in our children, but also recognize in ourselves and that we have to take steps. And the only way to achieve anything meaningful is, is to take steps in the right direction. You know, I was reminded of this last Thursday when I was at school on wheels and it was the last day of school before their summer break. So almost none of the kids had homework. And so we were doing different things and I was working with two kindergartners making a puzzle. And especially these kids, it was a hundred piece puzzle. It looked like a lot of pieces. And even for myself, I was like, wow, that's going to be a lot of work for us to do together. Are we going to get it done in the time that we had? But we started working at it and these kids, you know, got into it and we were able to eventually finish the puzzle. And I thought, well, you know, this puzzle is such a great analogy for so much that we have in life that at first it can seem like there's, you know, there's no way we could do it or that it's too overwhelming and we're not going to make it or be able to accomplish this goal. But then we start to get to work and we start to realize the only way we can do it is step by step or literally piece by piece and by putting in the work to then eventually accomplish this goal of completing the puzzle and that there's no shortcuts. There's no way you can stick five pieces together or try to just cram 10 pieces together to try to make them fit. You have to take the time, be patient and work hard. And that's the only way to achieve that goal. And I was working with these kids and they were getting excited as we got to the end. And when we finished, they were so proud of their accomplishment. And it was this little puzzle of a Tyrannosaurus Rex and some pterodactyls flying around. And they were just so excited of this goal that they accomplished. And I realized that was such a great lesson for them to see that it took hard work. Sometimes they doubted themselves, didn't think they can do it but they had to take step by step, piece by piece to achieve their goal and to get there. And every goal in their life will be the same way. It seems very daunting at times. It seems like it's going to be too much work, but the only way we can get there is step by step, piece by piece. And any goal that you have that is significant is going to take time and it's going to take lots of steps to get there. Um, I think it was Earl Nightingale has a quote saying that, you know, don't be discouraged by the length of time it takes to achieve a goal. The time will pass anyway. So sometimes when people have these thoughts of, you know what, I want to go back to school or I want to do such and such thing. They think, well, it's going to take so long. Well, the thing to remember based on that quote is that the time is going to pass anyway. 2022 is going to be here, but it's just whether or not you have that degree or not, that's going to be the difference. The time's not going to stop for you or it doesn't stop because you're not going towards that goal. You're going to be there, but it depends on what you have at that point. And so we want to remember that when we're making our goals, that when they seem too big or too daunting, that the only way you can get there is by taking those small steps. The thousand mile journey begins with a single step. And we have to then get excited about getting to that place and have faith that we will get there, that we will get there 
by achieving, by taking those steps one, one at a time. You know, even in reading the books each week that I talk about on the show, at times it is challenging for me to find the time and to make sure I have enough time to get the books done. I do get very lucky. I know because I have the accountability of having the books done for the show, it does encourage me to, to put that work in and make sure I divvy up my time to have enough time to read. But it feels so good each week when I finish the book and I keep a list of the books that I type into my phone and having that sense of accomplishment each time feels very good. And again, the only way I can finish the book is page by page and even just word by word reading the books to slowly get towards that goal. So with your children, it's good to have tasks that you do with them that illustrate this point. I just talked about doing the, the puzzles with those kids, and that could be a great idea. Do a puzzle that takes even more than just one sitting. That's going to take a long time. You, you dedicate a part of the dining room table or something where you can show them that, you know, look at this, look at this puzzle. We have 500 pieces and they think there's no way we can finish that. When you show them, well, we're going to work hard together and do it piece by piece. And we're going to get there. We're going to finish this as a team. And we're also going to finish it the only way that anything ever gets done through hard work. And then have them do it either if it's alone or you can do it with them as, as a team, but show them that they can get there and remind them. Remember when you thought it was impossible to finish or how all the pieces looked? There were so many pieces and it was so frustrating at the beginning. You couldn't find any two that worked and you didn't really have a strategy, but then we came up with a strategy of having all the border pieces first and then separating the pieces and the ones that looked similar to make it easier to find pieces that matched. And then look what we you did over time to show them that there is this amazing achievements they can make as long as they keep taking steps in the right direction and steps towards achieving that goal. And once they finish the puzzle, leave it there for a while, take pictures of it, you know, show them that we're proud of their accomplishment, especially because of the hard work it took to get there and that they can achieve anything as long as they're willing to put the consistent effort, the hard work into it to get to where they want to be. No, there's different abilities people have in puzzles, sure. But still, as good as you are at making a puzzle, you still have to do it piece by piece. It's not because you're gifted in puzzle making that you can put 10 pieces together at a time. And remind them that it's not because they're so smart that they're going to be successful. It's because of the hard work they put in. They, they get successful. If you ask me, if you look at the most successful people in most fields, they aren't necessarily the smartest ones of that field but they're the ones that worked the most consistently and worked hardest to get there. They likely had some predisposition to be good at whatever it is they're doing, but without putting in the hard work, they weren't going to get there. They weren't just going to magically end up there just based on their star ability and talent. And although we sometimes think we have to give our kids this message, it does them a huge disservice when we tell them, oh, you're a genius or you're so brilliant or you're so good at this. You're going to be the best and you're going to be so successful. We can tell them we see the talent in them, but that we're excited to see where their talent will go with the hard work they're going to be put in. The only way we reach our potential is by putting in hard work into whatever it is we are planning to do. So puzzles are just one example of something you can do. Even for adults, there are these coloring books that are becoming popular. And the coloring part itself is therapeutic. But what I've seen is that people, when they're completing these coloring books that have hundreds of little squares or different places to color in. It's the play, the feeling of 
putting it one step at a time and finally getting to that full accomplishment and you see that goal of everything colored in, that also feels good. That when we put in work, when we put steps in, we get to to some kind of a destination and some ending that feels very good. So when you think of people accomplishing things, rather than focusing on their star ability, oh, they must be so talented that they got there because he or she is a genius or has that skill, that's where they got there. Or thinking about luck, oh, they're so lucky to have graduated or achieved this goal or to have gotten to where they are and I wish I was that lucky. We want to focus on the hard work that it took to get there. Uh, Bringing back sports, I actually always say that I would wish they would do even more shows where they show how hard athletes uh, practice and even they go through watching films and videos and do so many different things to get themselves prepared for the game. Many people just see the game and they see the fun and the excitement. It just looks so cool to have this fun and all this attention and they forget or they don't see all the hard work that goes into getting there. Professional athletes, yes, they very often have physical gifts and attributes that make it that they can get to where they are, but without the hard work in developing their bodies and their skills, they're not going to get there. But very often kids and even adults see them and just think, oh, it's so cool. I wish I could just fly through the air like that or do what they're doing. But they didn't just get there by accident. They had to work hard to get to that point. So when you see someone accomplishing something, we want to remember that. And when you're talking to your kids first about what they did, You want to make sure you emphasize the importance of the hard work they did to get there and the hard work it'll take to be whatever they want to be. They say they want to be a doctor. You say, oh, great. You know, don't just say because you're so smart, you're going to get there. Say, yeah, I know you can do all the hard work it's going to take to be there and become a really wonderful doctor. So you want to emphasize that hard work and what they do, but also in what you see people accomplish. If you are watching sports with them, say, wow, imagine how many hours they practice together to become a good team or how long he or she practiced that skill to get to where they are. Emphasize the hard work, not just the innate talent for them and remember that for yourselves as well. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Again, the book for this week is Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'll post a picture of it um, probably by the end of today to make sure you're reading that book. And again, I'm open to recommendations for books for the books of the week. So if you have any in mind, please send them my way, either on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I'd be grateful to see what books you have in mind. And also, if you'd like to donate to uh, the orphanage trip I'm doing next month, you can go to my social media pages and see the link there. And again, a big thank you to everyone who already has Uh, donated money to that great cause. So thank you very much for that. All right, we've reached the end of today's program. Thank you to Rahman here in the studio and all the callers and listeners out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. Hope you have a wonderful day. Mm